the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. As much as we talk about the issue of radical Muslims, uh, what has happened in our relationship with uh, America and Islam, even even the church and Islam down through the years, uh, it, it's been easy to be engaged in the process of fighting Muslims or fighting radical Islam. Uh, the problem is, as we're fighting them, are we doing anything to win them? Uh, you know, at the core, uh, we can all, I think, agree that this comes down to a heart issue. Um, how do we go about uh, not fighting Islam singularly, but engaging Islam in an effective means that uniquely from a Christian perspective can do something to change lives? Well, that is the topic of a new book written by my next guest, um, he was born and raised in Lebanon, brings some unique perspective to all of this, uh, heartily uh, endorsed by our friend Hank Hanegraaff um, and uh, Christian Research Institute. He is George Husney. The new book is called Engaging Islam. And, George, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me. You know, this is almost like, uh, you know, last stand at the OK Corral kind of relationship, certainly between uh, the West and Islam, and, and even more specifically for purposes of our conversation tonight, between the church and Islam. Um, I think that there's been um, a, a growing sense of fear and frustration uh, amongst the Christian community, as we've seen increased uh, uh, battles going on for uh, Christian freedom in many countries. We know what's happening with the Coptic Christians, for example, in Egypt right now and things of this sort. But, you know, in the end, uh, whether we're talking about Muslims or Buddhists or atheists or those that would consider themselves undecided, it really comes down to uh, the responsibility that we cannot avoid of the Church to, to reach out and love Muslims for Christ. Yes, you are absolutely right. I want to, at the outset, uh, say that there are two approaches, basically, to Islam. There's a political approach and there's a human approach. Of course, uh, politicians have to make decisions what to do with terror, what to do with the threats, and so on. But uh, there's a large body of uh, Christians and believers here who uh, encounter day-to-day many Muslims in the workplace, uh, in the marketplace, in schools, everywhere. And those people, in the majority, are not going to put a bomb around themselves and blow you up and blow themselves up. They're just ordinary human beings. So I like to separate between Islam as a system, which in my opinion as a system is evil and uh, frightening, but as people, uh, they're not, and we uh, need to love them and care about them and bring the gospel to them. All right, with that is kind of the... the, um setting of the stage, so to speak, the, the terms of, of engagement here. Let's talk about the challenge of engaging Islam. Uh, first, maybe you can kind of give us a profile. Uh, 
we, we hear about the radicalization of Islam, and there's an impression that this is representative of all of Islam across the world. Uh, help us, from your perspective, uh, George, gain some understanding. When we talk about Muslims, who are we talking about here? Well, from my experience of uh, 45 years working with Muslims and traveling all over the Muslim world, um, I see that the radicals are a minority, but they're the vocal minority. They're the ones who cause the, the news and trouble and all that. But the majority, 70 to 80 percent, are moderates or secular. And those people, their profile is just like the profile of any other human being. Uh, they want to go to work and go home to their families and raise a family and live in peace. But also there's something new, I believe, in the last 10 years, since September 11, 2001, that Muslims are beginning to uh, open their hearts to alternatives to Islam. There's a huge uh, influx of people into the church, into Christianity, uh, by the influence of radio and TV and uh, uh, Internet and, and the shuffling of people around the world by through globalization, traveling, and seeking education. We have almost a million international students in America. About 40% of them are Muslim. And they're coming face-to-face uh, -face with Christianity. So they're much more open than ever before. Are there aspects of Islam that are perhaps common to, say, Christianity, in, in the sense that we have some Christians who were raised in the Christian home, all they've known is Christianity and the church mm -hmm. their entire life, um, and they're in some respects uh, maybe more Christians because they're following in their parents' footsteps. As I say, they've never really explored any other world religion, uh, the degree to which they might be engaged in the church, whether they're, you know, gung-ho active believers or just marginal Christians will vary from certainly from family to family. Then we have those that um, that came to Christianity, uh, and decidedly so, from either another uh, religious practice or belief, or maybe none whatsoever that said, I've investigated the claims of Jesus Christ in the Bible, and I have come to accept those claims uh, as truth and, and engage in a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What of the Muslims? Are, are there different flavors, so to speak, at that level? Well, definitely. Uh, pretty much every Muslim is a cultural Muslim. And then you add to it either political Muslims or religious Muslims. Uh, Islam as an identity um, e includes even people who are atheists. They don't believe in God, and yet they're called Muslim because that's their cultural identity. And then you come to the others who are religious. Some religious people uh, just uh, treat uh, religion as something that they want to do to gain forgiveness and gain heaven and so on. Others are political, and the religio-political group is the one that's most uh, dangerous in regard to terrorism and so on, because they base their politics on their religion. But not uh, all religious people are political, and that uh, leaves us with people just like in Christianity, very diverse, very different, uh, open-minded, uh, seeking to understand uh, the culture they're in, for example, the U.S. or Europe or where they may be going. That gives us many open doors to develop relationships and have friendships with them and share the gospel. And many of them are coming into our churches and uh, becoming Christians. <clears throat> if you've just joined the conversation tonight, uh, George Husney is with us tonight. A look at his new book, Engaging Islam. By the way, the, this book uh, newly 
published by Treeline Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a time out at this juncture, come back to more of the conversation. As we continue to understand the profile of um, the variety of different flavors, so to speak, of Islam, how do we go about reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? All that and more as our discussion continues here on KFAS. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to our conversation. With me tonight is author George Husney. His book is called Engaging Islam. We're attempting to do that uh, just tonight. He serves, by the way, as an adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is the founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach ministry to Muslims. Uh, A look tonight at uh, better understanding the profile of who Muslims are, And then uh, armed with that information, some tools to better engage and ultimately evangelize Muslims uh, in an effective way. Um, We talked a little bit about some of the the commonality, frankly, with the background, whether they're cultural, they've experienced or come into Islam through a family or might in some cases have uh, converted to it. It strikes me um, as notable, uh, George, that we see... Islam tending to cut across a lot of cultural lines in that we have, well, the world's most populous Muslim nation is not in the Middle East. It's in Indonesia. We have Arabs that are Muslims. We have Persians that are Muslims, although not all Persians are Muslims. Neither are all Arabs. That's correct. You are very true. Well, the biggest country in the world, I mean, a Muslim country is Indonesia, and the second biggest is the more surprising is India. (laughs) So before we get to the Middle East, we have uh, uh, two or three major countries, uh, and then we come to Turkey and Persia and then Egypt and so on. How do we get past a problem that I think a lot of us have, um, certainly to a greater degree, uniquely as Americans in a post-9-11 environment, but for a lot of individuals that look at what Islam has done to our country, Mm-hmm. the violence, the unrelenting, unrepenting approach yeah. to all of this. This is not even a let's sit down and talk, can't we negotiate? This is our way or the highway kind of thing, you know, the the, right. the old adage within Islam that they're either going to, you know, convert in a friendly fashion or do so, uh, you know, at the point of a knife. Um, yeah. how, how do we as, as Christians and Americans move ourselves past what I think for a lot of us is an innate fear of Muslims? Well, the, uh, the solution uh, is to think of those terrorist activities as political uh, Islam. And uh, if you are a politician, of course, getting, uh, engage yourself in, on that level. Make sure the country is safe and protected. But most of us are not going to be in that position. Most of us are going to meet a Muslim on the street or in our workplace, and we need to uh, treat them with love. Let's not impose on them. Uh, the uh, the anger, the hatred, and so on that uh, belongs to the terrorists. Uh, I believe uh, friendship is a um, first step towards people. Most Muslims in America uh, feel uh, prejudiced against, feel that Christians don't love them, they hate them, uh, frown at them. If you see a woman veiled, 
people uh, look away from her or gaze weirdly at her and so on. Uh, it would make a huge impact if you just go to a person like this and say hello. And if they are guests in the country, welcome them to the country and begin to chat with them and even invite them over to your house. Uh, our purpose as Christians is to be light in darkness, light to the nations, and to love our enemies um, without being naive about it. But uh, there's plenty of uh, Muslims who are not frightening, who are not threatening us. Those people need Christ, and we need to share. Uh, before we share Christ, we share our meal, we share our uh, a handshake, we share a smile with them and develop a relationship with them. All right, let's talk about the development of that relationship. You know, oftentimes that has to begin, like in any case, when you're you're trying to reach someone, um, establishing some level of trust. Yeah. Um, when there is fear, when there is lack of knowledge and understanding, um, mm-hmm. all of these elements conspire to create an atmosphere that is significantly lacking in trust. Uh, how do you advise folks to begin kind of crossing over this bridge and, and beginning to establish that sense of trust? Well, you, you'll know quickly when you begin to be friendly with somebody if they want to reciprocate or not. And uh, you can't guess uh, what agendas they have, but I believe we need to uh, anyway engage them uh, and become uh, friendly and friends with them. Um, let me get real. There are so many here. There are hundreds, even thousands in America who have to come to Christ, and I did a survey among a hundred Muslim converts, and I asked them, what are the major factors that led you to become Christians? A hundred percent, every one of them answered some act of kindness or love by a Christian. Mm. And uh, there are others that ticked something else, for example, dreams and visions. Sixty percent of those hundred have had a, a dream or a vision. So typically I go to a Muslim now, even in a park, I say, have you had a dream of Jesus? And if they have, then they're wide open to discussing uh, about Christianity and why they had this dream. Maybe God is calling them. And oftentimes the dreams actually contain uh, a message, follow me, by uh, uh, a man uh, dressed in a white robe and uh, walking away and looking back and asking them to follow him. So there are a lot of people who are curious, open, seeking. Uh, We can just engage them and find out uh, where they are. I call that diagnostics. You diagnose uh, who you're dealing with. And uh, if there's a reason not to trust, move on to somebody else you can trust. Let's pause on that point. When we come back, I want to get down to kind of the nitty-gritty. You know, as so often true when it comes to just good basic outreach or evangelism techniques, you know, find some kind of a common ground, um, some kind of a, a common ground upon which you can you can locate a starting point to get the dialogue going or to begin moving the dialogue toward things of the Scripture, things of the Lord. How do we find that common ground? Is there any? Many might argue there's none whatsoever, but is there really? Let's talk about this as we continue our conversation tonight. With me today is the author of a new book called Engaging Islam, George Husney. Back to more of our conversation as we continue.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program and to our conversation with uh, our guest tonight, George Husney. A look at engaging Islam, and uh, the book hardly endorsed, as I mentioned earlier, by um, Hank Hanegraaff. He serves, by the way, um, George does, as adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach to Muslims. Uh, no doubt in your ministry work, uh, George, um, as it is, I think, common for trying to reach out and, and share the love of the gospel with anyone, finding some kind of commonality, some common ground is critically important. Explain to us, uh, for the uninitiated, George, the common ground, the starting points, uh, some of the keys that can be utilized if you want to share your faith in a loving, non-confrontational fashion with a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend that happens to be Muslim. Well, thank you for this question. It's very significant. Uh, when I approach Muslims, um, I find them much easier than a nominal Christian. Nominal Christians feel that they know enough. Many of them just argue and are skeptical, agnostics, and so on. Generally, Muslims believe in the existence of God. They don't really question his existence. They believe a lot of things that we also believe. They have beliefs about Jesus, about hell and heaven, and so on. However, there are three basic needs Muslims have that the Quran does not give them, or Islam doesn't give them. And I usually begin with those. For example, if I meet a Muslim, and we're talking about all kinds of things, and he tells me or she tells me they pray five times a day, and they fast and do all these things. So I say, if you do these, are you sure you're going to heaven? They say, oh, no, God knows. We don't know. We'll never know. So even on the top level, the highest level of religious devotion, you'll find people saying, we do all these things that we still don't know. So they have eternal insecurity, and we need to give them that security and assure them that God uh, can guarantee them eternal life. And I give uh, usually uh, 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 an analogy. I ask if you drive a car, don't you pay for insurance and count on the insurance covering any accidents, any problems? And usually say yes. Say, well... How come a human agency, like an insurance company, is more reliable than God and your religion? And many people are shocked by this question, and that opens them up to uh, trying to understand what the Christian message is. This is one. And I have two other areas, if you want, uh, just run by them. Uh, please do, because one, one that comes to mind, and give me some, some insight here if I'm, if I'm kind of off the mark on this, um, for Muslims that that think of God as someone out there to be Hello, feared, far away. exactly, yeah. and and then a Christian come along and and talk about knowing God and the personhood of Jesus Christ personally, and a loving, kind, compassionate God who sacrificed His only begotten Son, yes. that yes. through which we can be saved have our sins forgiven, and most importantly, uh, then to walk in fellowship and relationship restored mm-hmm. with that loving God, it would seem to me, at least from what I know about Islam around the periphery, that these ought to be some keys that would be extremely fascinating yeah. to, to a Muslim. More than fascinating. They touch a chord in the heart because there is that need for intimacy with God, which they do not have. Their prayers are dry, ritualistic. You go to a mosque and see people bowing up and down. Look at their faces. Do you see any smile? Do you see any happiness? Do you see singing, rejoicing? 
you see uh, fear, you see guilt on their heads. They're trying to satisfy God or appease Him with all these rituals or all these things. It's a works-oriented, more similar to the Jews, but even worse than that. Because even in the Jewish tradition, Old Testament, there's talk about not just uh, worshiping God with the mouth, but with the heart, circumcision of the heart, and so on. But uh, another major area is uh, need for forgiveness. In Islam, there is no assurance of forgiveness. Even if you repent, even if you uh, a hundred times pray over over asking God to forgive you what you've done, there's no such assurance. So they live in guilt. And uh, we need to show them that God loves them and uh, will forgive them. One great image Muslims are very attracted to is God as a father. You mentioned that yourself. I remember a story of an Egyptian woman who was 25 years old, uh, covered completely, and she was passing by in her country, Egypt, a church, and she heard some music. So she went in covered. She knew that nobody would figure out who she is. So she watched from the back, and there was a choir director who was praying, and he said, Our Heavenly Father. When she heard that, that blew her away. And uh, that led to her investigating Christianity. says, I want this father. There's also a book written by a Pakistani noblewoman. Uh, I dared to call him father is the name of her book. And she had the same experience when she heard that God can be her father when she was told all her life that he is so unapproachable. In fact, one uh, Muslim scholar wrote in a book, that uh, it, don't you even attempt to know God because pursuit after God will only harm the seeker than help him. So, uh, yeah, we have an amazing good news that God loves you. God wants to forgive you. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to give you eternal life if you would only accept uh, his provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. And I've found many who are more than excited to receive that message. No, I've also heard it said, uh, the the perception by some Christians, that they're going into um, an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, feeling very much ill at ease, the sense that, gee, uh, Muslims talk about praying to Mecca five times a day. Uh, There's much talk about the influence of the Quran, uh, the sense perhaps that that Muslims, by the very nature of the, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for, not not rigidity, that's not the right word, but the, the structure of yeah, uh, the religion uh, would, would tend to be, I mean, how many Christians do we know that pray five times a day? I bet there are a few out yeah, there that even do it thing. once. Yeah. So there's that sense, I think, amongst some Christians that, gee, I go into this battle uh, in, in sharing my faith at a huge disadvantage because certainly the Muslim knows their scripture much better than I even know mine. Is that necessarily true? No, and that's not at all true. Uh, one the proof of... <laughs> That is not true, is that 80% of Muslims cannot read the Quran because it's in Arabic, and you can only read the Quran in Arabic. You can only pray in Arabic. And, uh, for example, you mentioned Indonesia. 200 million people don't know Arabic. Uh, India, 160 million people. Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey. They have to pray in a foreign language. Like, Like if in the church now, all of a sudden... Uh, the, our pastors decide that we should no longer pray in English. We should go back to the Greek and Hebrew. 
read our Bibles in Hebrew and Greek. How many Christians would really know their Bible if they had to read it in Hebrew and Greek? So most Muslims are illiterate in their religion, but they do know some things that are commonly held, commonly known, the five pillars, the six articles of belief. But these are taught sort of by rote. And you're not really required to understand Islam. You just need to be uh, doing the things that the Islamic tenets require. So that makes it really easier for us to approach them, and they're less frightening than we think. You encounter, of course, people who are uh, uh, polemic. By polemic, I mean confrontational, and they tell you the Bible is corrupted and we can't trust it and Jesus didn't die on the cross and so on. But in 45 years of working with thousands of Muslims, I've had very few uh, such encounters. I've even held um, what you call debates and uh, give lectures in public in Muslim countries where hundreds of Muslims come to theaters and I come up uh, on the podium and speak about the contrast between Jesus and Muhammad and people thanked me. Even imams have thanked me for enlightening them about uh, who Jesus is from the Bible and so on. So uh, there are two ways of looking at uh, Muslims. One is uh, fear, and uh, one is more hope and uh, positive thinking. And that's, I choose to do that, especially that I've seen so many of them come to know Christ. My full-time work is with Muslims. I personally am engaged. I just don't write books. That's my job. I'm, if you read my book, you'll see, uh, I don't know how many stories are there, but almost every page has a story or two about my own encounters with Muslims. And I find this to be really exciting to see so many coming to know Christ and having a transformed life and excitement about life uh, as they meet Jesus. And, of course, this book, by the way, can become a wonderful tool, a great resource for you in, in learning not just uh, what Muslims believe, why they believe it, some of the differences between those that are more religious-leaning versus more cultural, uh, and then, too, most importantly, is some of the tools and information that you need uh, to better develop a relationship, develop a sense of trust, and then ultimately the opportunity to share your faith. The last four chapters of the book are about how to engage practically, the kind of questions to ask, and if they ask you questions, how to answer them. It's quite practical, uh, with stories illustrating how I have done it with uh, different people. And believe me, it's not so difficult. I want to add one more thing. The most important thing in drawing people to Christ is the spiritual arena. One uh, Saudi guy came to me and said, tell me about the Trinity. I'm confused. Tell me about Jesus being Son of God. I explained for hours and over two weeks, and he didn't get it. So finally I said, look in Matthew 16, and we read it together, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter stood up and shouted, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, hey, who told you that? It's not flesh and blood. It's not human beings. It's my Father in heaven who revealed that to you. So I asked the guy, pray and ask God to reveal his character to you, who he is, his nature. And he did. A week later, he comes back to our regular meeting once a week, and he says, hey, I'm past that right now. Teach me the Bible. Mm. 
so it is a spiritual thing. No one will come to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus said. And, um, and uh, it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's our job to, as clearly as possible, share the gospel, share your testimony, read the scriptures, parables, stories, whatever. Engage them with the word of God, with the good news. And uh, Jesus warned us that not everybody will accept. He said, many are called, few are chosen. Few are chosen, that's right. Yeah, and we're glad for the few that are chosen. Even one out of a hundred, heavens will, uh, will celebrate uh, for the uh, repentance of one, uh, Luke fifteen ten. Amen. George Husney, we appreciate so much the time and the great resource, again, available to you, Engaging Islam, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area or through Amazon.com. And again, our thanks to author George Husney for being with us on this edition of Life. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. If you've just joined us on this edition, we're visiting with the Church Hoppers. We've got Rev, Glad, and Doc with us. A brand new series debuts this coming Monday. That's Monday, November the 11th at 10 p.m. on Nat Geo. Church Hoppers essentially swoops into a town or a community and helps bring about change to churches that are struggling. Now, you mentioned um, just before the break, Doc, about some of the resistance that's often met. How do you go about smoothing that over when, when churches tend to kind of be steeped in the way they do things. Tradition for many, um, certainly many denominations, is a big, rich, important part of our history and our heritage. You guys roll into town and say, now, wait a minute, you got to make some changes here. How do you deal with that kind of resistance? Well, I think what we look at many times is, is we understand their DNA a lot more than they do. And I believe that because we're on the outside looking in. Sometimes when you're on the inside, it's so close to you, you do not realize it. So in resistance, the resistance actually becomes a power because in the, in, in the whole process, it's about a win-win. Many occasions, let's say that we have a minister that, that is resistant to something that we, we believe that's there. Well, the truth of the matter is, if, they, if we can convince them to do what they don't want to do, that may, that, that's going to be an asset because what they do is they stand up for what they really believe. What we're finding more than anything else with these ministers, if they will stand up for what they believe, then it makes an impact. But when you do not stand up for what you believe, then I think the Scripture talks about you're cast to and fro, and, and you're unsure. You reach for one thing, and it works, and then you reach for something else, then it doesn't. The power of the conflict then becomes the power of the church hoppers because we're actually able to orchestrate a direction for them that they will fight for. So you just, that's what we're looking for. You're essentially then, you're flipping that energy. I mean, obviously a church that is passionate about what it does, and there might be somebody in the congregation that wants to resist change, and they will stand up, and they will be vocal about it, and they'll, they'll state their case and, and argue their viewpoint in front of the board of deacons and, and an elders meeting with great passion. What you want to do then essentially is redirect that passion and energy in a positive of direction that can get the church moving forward again. That's true. Craig, this is Rev. Kev. One of our strategies, which we'll share with you, is that uh, in a lot of cases off-camera and in some cases on-camera during episodes, you'll find that we are strategically 
trying to get the, the church leadership to unite again as a team. And in some cases, that's against us for a short period of time. So you're exactly right. We're taking that energy and that passion that they may have misdirected and uniting it again, creating a nucleus of power. And then in, for a short period of time, in a lot of cases, and as, as Doc uh, accurately described me, I, I'm typically the guy that's going to confront these pastors on issues. So as you'll see in the Country Salvation episode that's premiering Monday night, November the 11th, uh, there are there is some, some scenes in there where Pastor Roseburg and I, um, we, 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 we got, let's just say we got a little excited with each other. And, uh, but he never doubted our, our love for his ministry, our love for the word that he's teaching, and our passion for the cause of Christ. So it really and then is a rethink in the sense that we need to move from the, particularly from the pastor's standpoint, the me versus then, which, which sadly is kind of what is sort of an indicator, I think, of the beginning of the demise of a church when it's the pastor against the congregation. And so it's rethinking that no longer me versus them, it becomes us. It becomes teamwork then to move the church forward. That's exactly right. That, that is, we are successful when we leave a congregation after the reveal, which is the, uh, the celebration of the things that were accomplished both inside and the construction makeover, when we leave that congregation and, and see the, the united front again, then we feel like we've been successful. We mentioned about the premiere coming up on Monday. Again, uh, for listeners, that's Monday, November the 11th, 10 p.m. Pacific on Nat Geo. Um, in terms of some of the, the highlights that you guys can share with us of the shows that have been taped so far, what do you expect the viewer, the listener, to take away from this program? Well, this is glad. I think they're going to take away uh, a few things. They're going to get to see, as we've mentioned and, and, and spoke about many times so far, about uh, the, the leaders unifying and, and, and coming together and, and, and being, you know, passionate about what they're doing. You're going to get to see a unique style of worship. It's going to be different every single week because we're going to be hopping all kinds of different uh, religious organizations from cowboy churches to biker churches to uh, a Jewish shul. Uh, the first episode, uh, you know, at a country church out in Vail, North Carolina. And then you're going to see a physical transformation of the facility. So the viewer is going to get, um, uh, along with that format, uh, the personalities of church hoppers. You got, you got Rev Kev and Doc and I that, you know, frankly, we don't always agree. You know, we, we, we poke fun at each other and we have fun within the, within the format of the show and, uh, and our strategies. You know, when we come together uh, as a team, that's a, that's a fun experience. So the viewer is going to be able to, to get to know us as, as individuals and our personalities, see these churches unify. You'll get to see their unique style of worship. And in ultimately the real reveal service, you'll get to see that all come together in a physical transformation of the facility. And when you guys roll in to do that, I mean, it, it really is um, nuts to bolts, isn't it, in terms of not just the way the facility looks inside and outside, but also, too, in terms of the presentation, the engagement of the community, which I guess for some congregations is becoming more challenging. If we look at the advancement of technology these days, my goodness, uh, on average, uh, young people today get more news and information watching the Comedy Central program with Jon Stewart or details off of Facebook or Instagram or Twitter than they received from the, the old uh, stodgy uh, network evening uh, nightly news program. So are there aspects, too, when you're helping churches better understand the way in which they can integrate with technology, too? Well, this is Rev Kev. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure how many times it uh, exposes itself on the show, but I can tell you in our daily 
consulting efforts with ministries all over this country that one of the greatest needs they have is is uh, assistance with with social media uh, website enhancement or in some cases development um, because our our leadership our church leadership on average is is a is an aging group of individuals so uh, yet another change you know we don't ask the churches we we never ask the church to change their 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 belief system or their 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 message all we're asking them to do is much like Tylenol done uh, when I was a child they went from only offering it in a liquid form to offering that Tylenol in in a multiplicity of of different ways and so that's what we're asking these churches to do and social media uh, using IT is is definitely a way that most churches can use our our help and again for the the pastor to understand this is not a, a question as you point out uh, Rev of changing the message I mean if we think about the cathedrals that were built uh, four or five hundred years ago they had great acoustics why because they needed to carry the human voice throughout the entire sanctuary because amplification simply didn't exist. It hadn't been invented yet. But today now, we design sanctuaries for comfort and for seating and for visual, and we're less concerned about the acoustics because we have amplification. The message hasn't changed in all those years, but the methodology in which we deliver the message changes. And, and maybe to some degree, that is that kind of a, a core aspect of the message that you guys are communicating on uh, Church Rescue? Well, it is. Uh we, we ultimately are living by the Great Commission that Jesus Christ um, commanded the church to do. And what we're, our, our sole purpose, to boil it down, is to see the church grow numerically, financially, spiritually, and physically. If we can accomplish that with efforts from our experiences, both successes and failures from our individual aspects, then we've been successful. This is certainly going to tune in, uh, turn out to be a, a tune-in, a must-tune-in, I should say, uh, for listeners every week, and you can get treated to the premiere broadcast. The new series, again, premieres this coming Monday, November 11th at 10 p.m. Pacific on Nat Geo, and it is Church Rescue with Rev Kev, Glad, and Doc. It's going to be an exciting time, an opportunity for uh, not only the church that is undergoing the makeover to experience how to move the church forward stronger, but even for the viewer. There's going to be a lot of great takeaways, so Make it a point to tune in again this Monday, 10 p.m. Pacific on Nat Geo. Well, guys, we appreciate the time and the insights. It sounds like it's going to be a fun program, and thanks for dropping by and spending some time with us today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 